Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. So less than four months ago in May, here's a picture of the largest infestation of locusts to hit South Africa's Eastern Cape in 25 years. It stripped more than 19,000 square miles of land. Think about that, 19,000, just stripped it. Locusts are part of the grasshopper family, uh, but they're a lot more vicious. Every day, adult locusts can eat the equivalent of their weight, their own body weight, in one day. That's a lot, that's a lot of weight, uh, in one day. In, in the dry years, when it's not raining much, and they tend to be found in arid sort of environments, they, they're kind of like green grasshoppers. They resemble green grasshoppers, and they just poke around and don't seem to bother people that much. Uh, they look for food. They tend to stay away from each other. But when it rains, it pours, <laughs> literally. The locusts pour because they start multiplying and they swarm together and they, they breed explosively. Uh, they change in their color from green to black and yellow and red, and they just become these voracious swarming creatures. Here's a picture of a locust swarm from Madagascar in 2014. You can see them in the air. They can stay airborne for up to 12 hours. Uh, And they have a range of 3,000 miles in their lifetime. But as they migrate, uh, they breed as they migrate and they, they lay so many eggs and it, there's just this incredible progeny that follows along behind them. Here's a picture of a recent, um, locust swarm in East Asia. Locusts create devastation. Everything they touch gets destroyed. They penetrate into every nook and cranny of houses and fields and towns. One Roman historian said that they could gnaw, they could even gnaw through doors. Now, a devastating locust plague is, they're still happening all over the world today, but a plague that was very devastating is the background For our biblical passage today, we started last week going through the minor prophets and we're going to go through them, Lord willing, over the next 12 weeks. Today we come to the book of Joel and that's the background. A plague has hit the people of that day and Joel saw that devastating locust plague as bad, but as a harbinger for an even worse day that would happen in the future which he called the day of the Lord. So let me just give you a quick setting, historical setting here. Uh, All the green is the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, and they were united through the reigns of David and Solomon. But after that, uh, they divided into the northern kingdom, which kept the name Israel, and the, the darker green. And then the southern kingdom was Judah, um, because Judah was the kind of prominent tribe. There were only a couple of tribes down in the south, and Judah was a prominent one. But all of this is still in the Bible at times called Israel, so it can get confusing. You need to really focus in on who's saying what. And you see, the nation of Assyria took Israel away all these 10 northern tribes away into captivity in 722 B.C. And in 586, Babylon took uh, Judah captive. So Hosea, you see, last week prophesied mainly to the northern kingdom. Joel is a prophet of the southern kingdom. All right, that just sets the stage for 
who we're talking about. And there's this phrase that I'll use a lot today that that Joel uses a lot called the day of the Lord. Now, what is the day of the Lord? It is. And here's my summary of it, because it's it's really multifaceted, but it's a period in which God confronts and defeats evil and brings salvation to his people. Now, there will be one final cataclysmic day of the Lord that occurs at the end of human time. But there were several iterations of the day of the Lord throughout Scripture. So the prophets would talk often, and Joel is one of them, about the day of the Lord. And they might be talking about something that was happening right then or about to happen or something that was going to happen in the near future. They might have been talking about something that was not going to happen until the end of time. Now, in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is a foreboding concept. It's a dark concept. Because in order for God to be reigning, for God to put down evil and to rescue his people, there's going to have to be judgment as a part of that. Now, when you come into the New Testament, you you have both sides of it as well. You have, like, the day of Christ, uh, in which Christ returns on the last day and he raises people from the dead. That is called the day of Christ. But there are also dark elements even in the New Testament because in Romans 2, it's called the day of wrath. In Revelation 6, a great day. And Matthew 10 and 2 Peter 3, a day of judgment. In short, when we talk about the day of the Lord, we should think two-sided. We should think that that is going to be the day in which on the one hand, God is going to save and rescue his people. And that's hope. But we also should think about the fact that it is a day of judgment. And there is going to be the putting down of evil and the punishment of evil. Both aspects are true biblically of the day of the Lord. Now, one more thing before we actually dive into Joel. Here's, here's, a, here's a thing that the prophets did, not just when they talked about the day of the Lord. They did this with many things, but sometimes we think prophets... Like, oh, they, they predicted something, so they predicted it, and then at one point in the future, boom, it comes true. Not so fast. <laughs> because there were often iterations of fulfillment of those prophecies. So, for instance, the prophets primarily in the Old Testament spoke to their own present time. They called their own people that were living in this period Seven, eight hundred years, typically six, seven, eight hundred years before the coming of Christ. They spoke to the present, but they also often talked about something that would happen in what for them was the near future. Now, all of this is past for us now because this was, you know, twenty eight hundred years ago or so. But they spoke to the present. They spoke to the near future. And then sometimes they also had this telescopic view of the distant future. So even as they talked about one thing, it could have multiple fulfillments uh, that we'll see. We're going to see this in Joel. The locust plague that Joel talks about was something that was present, but he it was foreshadowing something that was going to happen in the near future if they didn't repent. And then ultimately, it was a picture of what was going to happen in what for him was the distant future. And that was the final day of the Lord in which there would be great devastation. So that's what's happening in Joel. Let's let's just walk through these. I want to walk through the present and near future and two things happening there. And then we'll walk through the distant future and see two things that are happening there. Just three chapters in Joel. Um, four things we want to look at. So first of all, in the present and near future, God is judging his own people. 
God is judging his own people. Let's start right at the very beginning. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? Tell it to your children. And let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. Well, what has happened? They, they've had this terrible plague. Verse 4, what the locust swarm has left, the great locust have eaten. And what the great locust have left, the young locust have eaten. And what the young locust have left, other locusts have eaten. I mean, it's just wave after wave after wave of locusts that have come in and destroyed our land. In fact, he viewed it like an army. Verse 6, a nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the husband of her youth. They put another picture of a locust swarm up just to give us an idea of what this might look like. One square kilometer of locust can have up to 80 million locusts in it. And they can consume the same amount of food as 35,000 people can consume in one day. In 1958, Ethiopia had a swarm in which just that nation alone lost 167,000 tons of grain. That was enough to feed more than one million people for a year. That's how much they lost through this one locust swarm. And 15,000 people died because of that. Locusts are very, very destructive. And that's what's happening now here in the land of Judah. Their land has been just wrecked. Not only... Was it wrecked from just being able to eat, but it affected their worship? Look at verse 9. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. These people were devastated. And it wasn't just an unfortunate series of events. This was judgment. They they could no longer worship. So it seems like, and it's interesting, by the way, the minor prophets are not shy when they announce sin. It's very, You read the minor prophets, 12 of them, and they'll name, you've done this and this and this and this, and that's very common in the minor prophets. Joel doesn't name what the sin is that Judah was facing. It's kind of assumed that they're sinful and they know they're sinful. And because of that, there's been this terrible plague to come through. And it's affected their health, their life, their livelihood. It's also affected their worship. Because offerings was a part of it. They would take the grain offerings and they would take drink offerings. And that was part of their corporate worship. But if there's no grain, there can be no worship. Now, it's a little bit different. When we come like today, for instance, I was thinking about this because we can worship anywhere at all times and we do. But when we gather corporately to worship, we gather in this place. It would be like if we had a terrible tornado or hurricane or something that blew through this area and completely destroyed this entire campus. And we came and there was there was no way to worship. Right. No electricity, no place to sit, no place to gather. This was what was happening for them. And 
it seems like they were just trying to worship God formally while still having sin in their lives individually. And so the prophet calls them to do something. He doesn't just give them the bad news. He wants them to do something. Verse 13, put on sackcloth, O priest, and mourn. Wail, you ministers, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God, for the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Have you ever felt sackcloth, that kind of crusty material? (laughs) Put it on, (laughs) priest. And and in other words, it's, it's to picture how terrible this situation is. And verse 14, declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. That would have been a powerful verse if you're standing around in destruction. And you're seeing that these locusts have destroyed. And now could there, could there be another one in the near future? I mean, it's present. They're experiencing it right now. But is, is something else going to happen to them? And he says it will come like destruction from the Almighty. So... Notice we said it's the present and the near future for Joel. So I think as we get into chapter 2, I think he's turning away from the immediate present. He's still talking to the people in the present, but he's letting them know about something that could happen to them in the near future if they don't do something. Let's just watch what he says. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. And what's that day going to be like? It's, It's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. He's just described an army, right? He's just described an army of locusts that came through. And now he's saying, another one's coming. Another army's coming like you haven't ever seen. And so there's there's a little bit of uncertainty here, honestly. It it could be more locusts, which are devastating. I tend to think that the locusts who march in and destroy everything are kind of a picture of actual human armies they are going to come in and destroy. Then remember, we, I showed you the map where the northern kingdom got taken out by the Assyrians and later the southern kingdom got taken by the Babylon, by, by Babylonians. If Joel was in the 8th century, and we think that's about where he was, it's hard to date some of these prophets because we don't have as much information. Uh, he doesn't name other kings like Hosea did, for instance. But he does talk about Jerusalem, and he does talk about as if the temple is functioning So Jerusalem hasn't been destroyed yet, it seems. So all that to say is there's going to be devastation coming and there's going to be an army that comes. And I think that these devastating locusts are a picture of the army that comes from the north, which is Assyria, that's going to destroy God's people. Verse 3. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. 
They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. And one of the most sobering things about all of this to me as I read it is discovering who's in charge. You know, most armies have a captain, right? They have a leader that they're following. And Joel tells them in verse 11 who it is that's leading the charge. Surprisingly, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number. And mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? This is no accident. This plague is no accident. It's not a just unfortunate situation that happened. This is God leading his army Unfortunately, against his own people. Now, I'm glad that Joel doesn't stop there. I'm glad that we don't have to stop there. Because as we go back to the present, we're going to see a second thing. So here's the first thing. God judges his own people. We need to understand that. We need to own it. We saw it in Joel. We need to see it today, that God is going to judge his own people today. But there's a second truth about God that he speaks to in the present, what was present for Joel, and that is God calls his people to repent based on his character. Based on his character. Look at verse 12. We'll pick up at verse 12 in chapter 2. Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. This presents God's deep care for his own people. Even now, after all that's happened, Judah, after all of your destruction and rebellion against God and the devastation that has come, even now, I'm calling on you. Even now, it's maybe what seems to be the 11th hour. You've seen these locusts and there's another day of the Lord coming, but, but you can avoid it or you can endure it. Or you can have victory in it. How? Even now return to me. You know, I think this can happen today. It's not that if you sin, you engage in a life of sin, get engage in a life of disobedience against God, and you, you're, you call yourself part of God's people, that locusts will actually come and eat up your ground. Although something's eating up my ground at my house, so I've got to check myself. But I know what that is. It's not locust. <laughs> it's moles. Anybody ever have moles in your yard? You know, they, you see the tunnels. Well, that's not in the notes. I don't. I but that's what I just thought about that. They they are coming. Let me know afterwards if you know how to get rid of them, or any of you are willing to come and reach your hand down there. I'm certainly not reaching my hand down in there. But what can happen is that if we, if we go in our lives in a way away from God, then he can bring devastation. And if we go through the motions, maybe you're, you look all right to everybody on the outside, right? You show up for church, maybe you show up for your community group, your Bible study. How are you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm good. And, and it seems like things are okay on the outside, but if, if there's evil on the inside, if you're living a double life or something like that, God wants to say something to you. 
Return to me with all your heart. With fasting and weeping and mourning, sin devastates us. I mean, we're all subject to sin because we're humans, and it looks good and it looks appealing, but sin is devastating. It devastates us emotionally. It devastates us spiritually. It entices us, but it wounds us. It hurts us. It separates us from intimacy with God and intimacy with others. That's what sin does. Verse 13, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Remember I said it was based on his character. Why? Why return? That for, that's a big hinge word here. Why? For he is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. How should the people in Joel return to God? How should we return to God? This verse gives us three three ways we should return to God. It's a picture of thorough, heartfelt repentance. First, it needs to be wholehearted. It says, with all your heart. You know, the condition of our heart is much more important to God than what we do outwardly. Right? Humans look on the outside. Humans look at us and judge us based on what they see on the outside. But where does God look? On the on the heart. Return with all your heart. God knows what's in our hearts. He wants all of our hearts, not part of them. God's not impressed by the fact that you might show up at church or give money or do some good outward deeds if those things aren't flowing out of a heart of love for him. So it needs to be wholehearted. Second, it needs to be sincere. He says, with fasting and weeping, only a repentance that was deeply felt would suffice here, weeping. And mourning, that speaks of contrition. And then thirdly, it needs to be inward. Look what he says, rend your heart or tear your hearts and not your garment. In those days, if you were, the the days of the Old Testament, if you were sorry about something and you wanted to publicly display that, you would actually tear your garments, right? You would, that would be like your outward sign of repentance. Like you'd rip your garment and then you'd go over and get the sackcloth and you'd put that rough material on you. Look what the prophet's saying here. I don't want you to tear your clothes. I want you to tear your heart. Tear your heart and not your garments. I want it to be inward. Why? For he is gracious and compassionate. Literally in the original it reads, gracious and compassionate is he. It puts the word gracious and compassionate up at the head of the sentence for emphasis because God is gracious. And God is compassionate. That's why we're called. That's why they were called. And that's why we're called to return to him. And he's slow to anger. (laughs) There's a Hebrew idiom here. The Hebrew literally reads long of nose. How many of you have a long nose? Well, you don't need to raise your hand. But in those days when somebody got angry... The way they'd say you got angry was your nose grew hot. Right? Okay. And like we use expressions today, like somebody blew their top or they boiled over or something like that. So so to get angry, your nose had to get hot. But think about it. The longer your nose is, the longer it takes for your nose to get hot. And the prophet says, God has a long nose. God is long of nose. Aren't you glad for that? (laughs) That he is slow to anger. He's not quick to anger. You know, some of us have had teachers or spouses or parents or friends 
or associates or bosses or employees or people in our lives that they were quick to anger, right? God is slow to anger. He's abounding in love. That's the word that's used of God's covenant loyalty, family love. And he relents from sending calamity. Now, on the surface, it appears that Joel is saying God is a God who changes his mind. Like if if the people in Joel's day would repent, then God would relent. God would change his mind about sending calamity. But this is like just picturing it from our perspective. It's a figurative speech that shows what's really happening. Um, It appears that if they repent and God doesn't send this calamity, that God would change his mind. But guess what? All along, God didn't want to send the calamity. All along, God wanted them to repent. So this is, it's true, but it's figurative to help us understand the heart of God. This is what God wants and desires. And verse 14, who knows? Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Now think about that. Remember what he said in chapter 1 about the grain offerings and drink offering? Do you, do you remember? No, you couldn't have them because there was no grain. But... Joel saying, well, who knows if you repent, God might just bring that back. I, I don't think he's trying to uh, instill doubt in them. I think he's just not trying to take God for granted. You know, God's not like a, you know, a genie or something. You know, he's, he's just saying, hey, repent, be thorough, be sincere. This is who God is. This is what the hope is, that God would restore those things leave behind that kind of blessing. It's not just forgiveness that's in view, as wonderful as forgiveness is, but it's also restoration. Look at verse 25. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other locust and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. Sometimes people have quoted this and maybe misquoted this, Let's remember the context. The context is a sinful people have been devastated by locusts, and God is saying through his prophet, if you repent, here's what God can do. God indeed can restore those years that the locust has eaten, and it's true of us today as well. Maybe somebody here needs hope. Maybe somebody here feels like, wow, I've just messed up so much. And I've seen the devastation of sin. I'd say, look at your sin long enough to confess it. But look at God and what God can do to rebuild and restore and change your life again and bring you to a spot of worship again and service again and joy again and hope again and that's good hope right (laughs) verse 26 you will have plenty to eat until you're full and you'll praise the name of the lord your god who has worked wonders for you never again will my people be shamed and then you will know that i am in israel that i am the lord your god that there is none other never again will my people be shamed. So there you have it in the first couple of chapters. You've got the locust in chapter one. You've got the coming day of the Lord that's near in their near future for them and a call to repentance based on the character of God. One more chapter in Joel. And it really just flows right out of the end of chapter 2. It actually starts in verse 28 of chapter 2 because he now is going to say that let me tell you what God is going to do. Not only God can restore right now, but out in that great, great future day, there's, there's going to be a great day of the Lord in the future, and there are going to be a lot of great things that happen in the future. 
And some of them involve greatness for God's people. And some of them involve judgment for people who aren't God's people. So let's look at that distant future and say a couple of things about it. First, God will empower and restore his people. And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit afterwards. That's key. Like afterwards. So he's pointing way out there afterwards. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. You see both sides of it here? (laughs) And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So Joel, 800 years before Jesus ever walked on the earth, predicts this, that in those days I'm going to pour my spirit out and all these wonderful things are going to happen, but there's going to be judgment and everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so 800 years later, Jesus walks on the earth, he lives, he dies, he's buried, he rises again, he ascends back to heaven. The early church is born on what day? In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And on Acts chapter 2, that's when this began to be fulfilled That's when what Joel saw by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit hundreds of years before, that's when it really, really started coming true because on that day there were gathered from all over the known world Jewish people from all over coming for one of their great festivals. And they spoke different languages from each other. And God had promised that he was going to send his spirit to his people. Peter stands up and preaches the gospel. People are saved. And what happens? The Holy Spirit descends on them in power. Now, the Holy Spirit was active all through the Old Testament. But now the Holy Spirit is going to dwell inside of people and live inside of people for the first time. And they start speaking in other languages. It's not gibberish. It was other languages. There's praising God in other languages. And the bystanders are looking around and they're going, what's going on with these people? They must be drunk. And look what Peter says in verse 14. He stood up with the eleven raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is what Joel predicted. And then he quotes it in the last days. I'll pour out my spirit on all people and then all, all, all of it. You know, the prophecy, the vision, the dreams, the wonders in the heaven, the blood, the sun turned into darkness, the moon to blood, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, sometimes we've had a misunderstanding about what the last days are, but let me tell you what the last days are. That's a period of time in the grand scheme of God's history. If, if this is creation... And this is the final consummation in heaven. There was all of this amount of time. And then the com- between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, however long that is, we don't know. But that's what the Bible calls the last days. So if you ask me, are we living in the last days? I am going to say absolutely. Anybody and everybody who has ever lived since Acts chapter 2 has been living in the last days. 
Because what are those last days characterized by? God sends His Spirit on His people and He pours out His power on them through His Holy Spirit. That's the last days. But not every single thing that Joel prophesied actually happened on the day of Pentecost. There's no record of the sun and the moon doing those things. So this is the inauguration of the last days. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And it is not going to be finally and completely fulfilled until the very last day of the day of the Lord. Does that make sense? Shake your head one way or another. See, some of you are shaking your head yes just because you want to go home. I know, I know, I get it. No, I'm just kidding. It's, 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 it's amazing. It's wonderful prophecy. But it began to be fulfilled back then. It's great for believers. But unfortunately, for those who aren't believers, the day of the Lord is not great news. It's not good news. It's terrible news. And that's the second thing. God will judge the nations. This is what the last days are going to be. God's going to pour out his spirit and he's going to work in and through his people to share the gospel and to build disciples and to make disciples everywhere. That's what he told his first disciples to do. But he's also at the end going to judge his nations and in the nations. And in chapter three, it, there's a visual image he's using. Imagery here, he's painting a picture of the terrible final judgment of God on the nations. In those days, and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And there I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel, for they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. So this is no longer just about Israel. This is about all nations. Now, where is this valley of Jehoshaphat? Uh, you, you can't find it. <laughs> Joel's the only, the only place it's mentioned in the Bible. And you can't really go to a map and say, oh, this is the specific valley he's talking about. The significance of it is not in the location, but in the name. Jehoshaphat means God has judged. God has judged. So they often fought battles in valleys. And so Joel is painting a picture of multitudes of coming into this valley where God's making judgment. Well, why did God judge? Is, why is God going to judge these people? It's specifically the ways they treated God's people. They cast lots for my people and they traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine that they might drink. This is what today we call human trafficking. And it happened back then and it's still happening, unfortunately, in our world. Verse 5 or not 4. Now... What you have against me, Tyre and Sidon, all you regions of Philistia, are you repaying me for something I've done? If you're paying me back, I'll swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. For you took my silver and gold, carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks that you might send them far from their homeland. And it seems like in verse 10 that the people are gathering for a battle. <laughs> Interesting. What, what a picture. Here's God there. And these people are coming to do battle against God because he says to them in verse 10, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. They, they're taking their agricultural accoutrements and, and making weapons out of them against God of all people. It's crazy for them to think that they could actually fight against God, right? Well, how many people try to fight against God today and his word and his will? And look at the imagery in verse 12. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance again. Here it is in the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit, 
to judge all the nations on every side. So you got all of these nations coming to fight against God. And do you think God's nervous? Do you think God's scared? Do you think he's wondering how it's going to turn out? Uh, does he have all the angels on high alert? He's just going to sit. He's going to sit on his throne of judgment and cast his judgment. Swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. A lot of wickedness in human hearts. And he named some of it in Joel 3, but it's not just what he named. It's, it's, it's a lot of wickedness. Think about what we've seen in our lifetime or read about. In the 30s and 40s, 6 million Jewish men were exterminated in the Holocaust, not counting women and children. Between 1975 and 78, 1.6 million were slaughtered in Cambodia. 1994, in Rwanda, half a million people were killed in three months, and, and half of them were children. Since 1973, in America, more than 65 million, maybe it's even higher now, babies have been aborted. And you know what? God has seen it all. Great is their wickedness. So this great restoration that God has promised in verse 1 can't happen unless God stops the evil, right? (laughs) And I want to tell you, there is a day in which God, who has let the world, let us all have our choices and let humans and nations do our things, walk away from him and hurt each other, There's going to be a day that God steps in and says, okay, it's time to gather in the valley of decision. That's it. That's it. I'm I'm, I'm putting an end to evil. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And the sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shined. It's not the valley of decision because people are going to make a decision that on that day. They've already made their decision and God has made his decision. And his decision is there will be judgment. It's two-sided, remember? (laughs) The holiness of God and the compassion of God. And they're both true. They're both true. In some ways... Joel 3.16 sums up the whole book. It sums up the two-sided nature of God. Look what will happen here. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble. But the Lord will be a refuge For his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. And that verse says it all. (laughs) This is our God. He is going to roar against evil. And he is going to hold evil accountable. But for those who are his people, who find refuge in him, who call on him, who look to him, he will be the refuge. He will be the stronghold Colin Smith says the God is who is the judge who you should fear is also the refuge you should seek and when we think about this he says this takes us to the very heart of the gospel and I want to start wrapping it up with this Romans chapter 3 verse 23 to 25 for all have sinned And fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Wow. We've sinned. 
We're separated from God, but God has made a decision. That's what justification is. That's a legal term in which God declares you are righteous. And he did that through the death of Jesus Christ. And that's the good news for us today. If you're here today, it's not too late. It's not too late at all. Let me give you God's word for us this morning. Repent. And the day of the Lord will bring joy rather than terror. Repent, and the day of the Lord will bring joy rather than terror. I think Joel portrays a beautiful blend of God's grace and God's holiness. If you overemphasize the holiness of God, your God could be conceived of as a tyrant whom no one could ever please. But if you overemphasize grace, your God becomes not God at all, but a weak-willed, grandfatherly type who overlooks wrong. And neither one of those are biblical pictures of God. Well, what should we do today? Let me give you quickly. I don't think you guys are listening fast enough today. No, it's not on you. It's on me. (laughs) There's a lot of material here. A lot of material here. Maggie, if you'll come on up to the keys and start playing and be ready. I want to just want you to start responding because I want to give you four quick things. The first thing is receive God's message of repentance and salvation while there's still time. If you have never received Jesus Christ personally, your sin has separated you from God and you know it. Receive it while there's still time. And second, for those of you who have, share God's message of repentance while there's still time. You know, a lot of us use alarm clocks on a regular basis or maybe use our phone or whatever to set the alarm, but... In 20th century Britain, the the alarm clock, well, there were alarm clocks, but they were unreliable and they were expensive. So there was a there was a category of service people called the knocker upper. And people would actually go, you know, the, the rural people had moved into the manufacturing cities and their schedules were totally different. Their jobs depended on getting there on time. And the knocker upper was somebody who went around to these buildings and at early in the morning, pre dawn and knocked on the windows to wake the people up so they wouldn't lose their job. And you know what? I think Christians are (laughs) knocker-uppers. That's what we need to do. We need to tell people, hey, people, the day of the Lord is coming. But God is gracious and forgiving, and he offers forgiveness and salvation and hope right now. Isn't that a great message? Number three, in this age of the Holy Spirit, yield and be filled. He has sent his Holy Spirit and we're in those last days. So let's just yield to him. And then number four, let's worship the Savior. Let's worship him. Look what he's done. Repent and the day of the Lord will bring joy rather than terror. We bow your heads for a minute. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.